Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Being a wordsmith can be fraught with dangers, especially if you're a middle-aged male. I can identify that. Uh, a middle-aged male with little job security and a failing marriage. Craig Sherborne's latest novel, Off the Record, delves into the plight of a male journalist on the brink of an abyss. So, Craig, welcome back to 3CR. And lovely to be with you. <laughs> now, Callum Smith is your protagonist. Mm. I'm called Words for short. My full sobriquet is Wordsmith. Mm. It's a play on Smith, my commonest of surnames. But it's more than that. It describes me as a journalist, my place in the world, among the worker bees. The identity of your protagonist. What's, mm. Who is he? How is he? What is he? Um, well, he is, as he says, he's, he, he's a, um, a, a person who's always had a gift with words. Um, he was the son of shoe salesmen, so it was not in his DNA, but right from from school. He was a good writer and ended up in journalism where he was known as someone who could make his copy sing. And it's an elevation, so to speak. Yes. But the tide has turned. Well, his identity has always been, he's kind of been top dog and in, in, in terms of um, job security, um, going up the, uh, the, the ladder, um, expecting to become an editor um, on an S, one of the East Coast Daily Australian newspapers. But the, of course, the media landscape has changed dramatically. Newspapers are dying, and his transferable skills um, are quite limited, uh, except to uh, go into digital journalism um, with a website, a, cri- a crime website based in Melbourne called Pry.com, where he is, becomes a rewriter and the chief of staff and um, a menace to society. <laughs> but with the world of journalism sort of starting to, to crumble beneath him, yeah. he's also got a marriage that's mm. failing and perhaps um, the f- his son isn't quite the um, mm. prospect that he had hoped as well. So it's not this the, the work situation, mm. but other elements of his life are sort of dissolving around him as well. Well, it, it's often you know, some of the qualities you need are venality, ambition, um, and uh, a kind of mongrel attitude to be a good uh, a journalist, as he's discovered, um, you know, to go into people's lives and, and do what, I, what he calls break and enter into people's lives, is to steal their narratives and turn them into content for his employer to justify his wages. That also means that you have to have a flaw in your character. And um, if you don't, if you don't have that glitch in your character, what he calls the dead glitter in your eyes, um, then you're not very good at your job. But it also means your personal life, uh, it, it transfers into your personal life and that's when you get into trouble. Now. As a wordsmith yourself, you've mm-hmm. used some interesting words here to describe mm. his situation. Mm-hmm. There are two, uh, dispossession and citizenship. Mm. When I think of dispossession, I think of land, something that happens to others, the bankrupted or aborigines. But there is dispossession when it comes to losing people. Losing loved ones to others is losing the core of yourself, not mm. just one loss in my case. So there's dispossession, mm. but you've also then got uh, the line, um, if I can find it, 
Um, basically, it isn't easy uh, for me because our 15 years, so he's talking about his relationship with his mm. wife and Ollie, this son we made, it's like the faith I belong to. Mm. And I can't give that up like giving up citizenship. But if you've found someone better, so citizenship, faith, disposition, mm. these are the words you're using to yes. describe his situation. Well, t- to describe... Um uh, uh, the relationship with, with with his with his wife, who has now become his estranged wife, um, and I sort of explored that in my previous novel, where I talked about um, the um, uh, uh, Tree Palace and the Amateur mm. Science of Love. Before that, the idea of being uh, love is being kind of it, it's uh, you're like the president of your own country and your own family. You know, you've, you're it's it's like your own country that you you build within this domestic relationship you have. And so when that goes, it's not only your you know, identity, it's your religion. It's the thing you've got up in the morning for. It's your power um, structure and um, your ability to, uh, to express emotion and to, um, uh, and to have some kind of sanctuary away from the, you know, the, the, the really nasty world of being out in society trying to make a living. But this raises the whole notion of what's happening to the middle-aged male. Mm. Um, and it's quite frightening. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, we sort of we wonder when we meet when we're going to reach peak recrimination against middle-aged males. It's sort of it. Um, we we're not sort of going away, um, but <laughs> but we're we're kind of hanging around, wondering where. I guess in in, the, in past we were you know we were the kind of we we were the. The, the top dogs in power and all that, and that's gone, and you know that's fair enough. But there is also a a, a misandry, a hatred of men that I see seeping into society, that um, that really uh, uh, makes someone like Callum Smith in the novel. Um, he would react with that with 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 bitterness and with with a kind of a desire to be bad to react against that that attitude with well I'm going to fight. Well, he does fight, and mm. he's fighting for his job yeah. and fighting for his marriage, and he employs some rather underhand or unethical techniques. Uh, so for his job in journalism, he uh, basically attempts a stoning, yes. so to speak. Would you care to explain what stoning is? Well, the stoning is short for heart of stone, uh, and uh, it's when you, you – know, if – Things are a bit slow on the crime scene around the streets. Um, you can create trouble in order to report upon it, and stoning is when you, you one of the one of the conventions of journalism, a thing called fall, fall from grace, when you want somebody to fall from grace, so that then you can say, well, this was a person who was somebody, and now they're a bad person, and we're seeing so much of that around at the moment. I won't we, we won't name names, um, but if they are uh, if the, if that's you know, not not on the cards at the moment. You can create the fall from grace by actually setting someone up, and so he's in the business of setting people up, and um, uh, one of which is to go to send a homeless person into a church, Christian churches, because everybody hates Christian churches at present time, and um, uh, and um, to to beg for alms, to beg for money, and cause disruption to the proceedings so that they get thrown out and when they get thrown out then they can say well this is the, the heartless hypocrites mm. of of theology <laughs> and that's a, that's a stoning uh, in brief there are other aspects to it but that's sort but of you, in but brief. you're setting up a story you're trying to work yeah. up news because 
Mm. Part of what Callum is trying to do mm. is find stories to keep his reputation alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he's actually also resorting to past stories, things he's done in the past, mm. uh, to, to reuse oh, yes. them. Well, he's got these things called vintage files. When you run out of ideas, you go back and you recycle what you've done 10 years ago, use the same lines, just use different people. And, and that's very, very common. I've done that many times myself when I was working as a journalism, uh, working in journalism. Um, but... Um, uh, there are all sorts of other things uh, you, you can get up to in order to, you know, to cr- generate copy. But also mm. then, this uh, lack of ethics also applies to mm. his estranged wife. <laughs> well, you've got to... He, he's trying to... He wants, this, he wants security, and this is the thing, you know, somebody who's a bad... Who, who has a kind of streak of this thing called the dead glitter, badness in them. You know, he's a middle-aged, middle-class, rel- relatively comfortably, comfortably off, or has been a comfortably off man. He has this thing called um, the dead glitter in him, which means that he can go out into society and do whatever he needs to do to, to, to make a wage. But when it comes home, it, it, when, he, when he brings all that kind of, all that, that, that flaw or that, that, that meanness in his character home, uh, and his wife is estranged and she's taken up with another fellow, but he needs the security of a family. It's the way, it's that sanctuary of home. That's very important to him. It's important to all men, even wild men. And I'm a wild, been a wild guy, but I love the sanctuary of home. Um, in order to preserve that, um, he wants to get rid of the other fellow in his wife's life. And to do that, he has to try and destroy him. And to destroy him, well, I mean, he says, he says, you know, in, if we were in a third world country, we'd just go out and kill him. But we don't do that because we're middle class people, what we do is we destroy their reputations. And the way to destroy their reputations, or one of the ways to do it, is to ring up the tax department anonymously and say he's cheating on his taxes and start the ball rolling with that. You start spreading rumours. and yes. There are other people yes. in the in the journalism industry yes. which have contacts that can sort of make this grow and develop and oh, become yes. more insidious. Well, he's got this fantastic contact who's a... a, a private investigator called Pico, uh, Pico Malich, and she's called Pico because she peeks through windows. And she, uh, that's her nickname, and she, um, and she's, she's grown a little bit too heavy to climb up ladders and peek through windows. She used to do divorces, you know, where you're trying to get photographs of, of, um, <clears throat> uh, of cheating spouses. But she, she's very, very good for helping him, um, you know, dig dirt, uh, plant a little, a little untrue story here, another little untrue story there. But men can sort of justify this yes. resentful behaviour as as part of protecting their protecting not only yourself but protecting yeah. your family and and thinking well I've got this son who's fourteen fifteen years old and he's he's not much chop intellectually he's not I wanted him to follow in my footsteps he just doesn't have the brains he's going to struggle to get into university so how can I in some way manipulate the education system in order to get him um, uh, to, to rise through the ranks of the education system and at least maybe have a chance of getting becoming my apprentice as a, as, well, as a wordsmith. There's, there's a pride there in what he wants his son to achieve and, and the son at, the, at 14 yeah. years of age yeah. thinks he, he wants to follow in his father's yeah. footsteps, but he isn't the same chop. So yeah. dad tutors him and then yeah. sort of takes over and it leads to the parent-teacher evening. Well, there's a parent-teacher evening where he um, <clears throat> he comes up against a guy who's called Mr Oxford because he's got an Oxford degree and it's a private school, of course, 
uh, that he sent his son to, and the uh, uh, he's helped his son out with homework words, um, the, the wordsmith. He's helped, but he's done more than that. He's um, he's done far more than that. I won't go into detail. And um, and the the teacher says, um, <clears throat> well, because we actually think you're. Your son not only is in not much chop, but he's been doing some some things. What I won't go into detail that we think is cheating. We want to sort of move him along, <laughs> and of course, that just gets words going because he has the capability to not only destroy that school but to destroy that Mister Oxford. And but he doubles down instead yeah. of admitting to yeah. what's taken place. Yeah. The term we hear today is double down. And we're seeing examples of it in mm. politics and, and the mm. male ego at play. Mm. So it's, it's more than believable. It's, it's taking place now. Well, you know, the funny thing is um, that the closer you get to writing reality, sometimes <laughs> the more unreal it becomes, the more farcical it becomes. And one of the criticisms I've always had of my work is that it seems almost pornographic in its reality and farcical. But, you know, the reality is I'm very close to reality, folks. Well, you, you get very close <laughs> to reality too you. with, with um, the owner of yeah. Pry.com, yeah. Pockets. Pockets because he has the money. Yeah. But Pockets is having an affair. Yes. Um, having Jenny was like being a bit bad. It felt good. Yeah. I don't think I've done enough bad things in my life. Yeah. It's a very... Topical issue. Well, it is, and particularly pe- people who have had a sense of entitlement all their life and have had have had it not their own way and have led sheltered lives and have led good lives. Really, I mean, they haven't broken the law except for, as he says, you know, st- stole something from you know from from the Kmart or whatever. Um, he uh, he thinks, uh, oh, um, this pocket thinks, you know, I wouldn't mind actually just for once in my life being a bit naughty, really doing something that I shouldn't do for a thrill. And that gets him into a lot of trouble. But being naughty gives you um, the opportunity to actually appreciate more fully what you have. Well, it it can if you're about to lose it. (laughs) But there's also the thrill of badness is really quite a wildness, is quite underestimated, I think. We don't quite realise how much of a frisson (laughs) it is and how it can spark, you can get you into trouble, but can also make life worth living. Well... On that note, Craig, we are going to actually have to end the interview. Good, because before I incriminate myself... You incriminate yourself any further. (laughs) But um, the novel sort of has... A happy ending, shall we say, and we're going to let the listener find that out for themselves. Yes. But it's a delightful sort of insight into the male ego. The book is called Off the Record, a novel, the author Craig Sherborne. So thank you once again. It's a text release, so thank you yes. once again for coming in, Craig. Oh, it's been delightful. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, we're going from one unhappy marriage into what looks like a perfectly happy marriage with Sally Hepburn and the family next door. Do you ever see your neighbours? Is it just a wave hello or do you know them better than that? We're welcoming back Sally Hepworth with her new book, The Family Next Door. Now Sally, how are you with your (laughs) neighbours? Some have accused me of being the local Mrs Mangle in my neighbourhood. I'm the one who is keeping an eye on everyone's business and trying to figure out what they're up to. So uh, I I do have an interesting relationship with my neighbours, usually from afar. But that's your job as a writer. You have to be curious. (laughs) So the family next door, you've set in Pleasant Court. Now, it seems to be the ideal location. Where is it? 
It's in Sandringham in Bayside and it's pretty much, Pleasant Court is fictional, but it is pretty much my neighbourhood. And most of the uh, the houses all have families. We've got Essien, Bill, Ben, Fran and Nigel, Angie and Lucas. They've all got two kids. Mm-hmm. But Barbara, now she's a single woman. What's she doing in the in the neighbourhood? That's right. Well, Barbara is Essie's mother. Uh, she lives in the neighbourhood and because after a, a couple of years ago, Essie had a difficult time and so her mother wanted to move into the neighbourhood to stay close and to help her out. Now, one of the mums, Angie, has her own real estate business and rents out another house in Pleasant Courts. Court. It's rented by Isabel. Why does she create so much interest? Well, it's a bit of a cookie-cutter kind of neighbourhood with families. They've all got two kids, as you said, and everything is quite pleasant, like the name suggests. Um, And so it's a real surprise to the neighbours when someone different moves into the street. Isabel is single, um, she doesn't have any children, and she's got just a different vibe going on from the rest of them. She's quite trendy. Um, They wonder if perhaps she's a lesbian, um, which is something a bit different in this cookie-cutter kind of neighbourhood. And so immediately she catches everyone's attention. Ah, They often don't come into each other's houses until the creation of an neighbourhood watch group. (laughs) This leads to many of the houses installing cameras, security cameras of what's happening outside. But what um, Sally Hepworth has is she tells us what's going on inside and it's so much more interesting. So let's find out a little bit more about Angie and Lucas. So Ange and Lucas are um, pretty much, they consider themselves the head of Pleasant Court or the president of Pleasant Court, Um, at least Ange does. Um, She's also the local real estate agent and she likes the idea that Pleasant Court is actually very pleasant and lives up to its name. Her husband, Lucas, is a photographer and he's very, very handsome and she Mm -hmm. spends a lot of time keeping an eye on him and making sure that uh, he's not up to no good. But he's fantastic with the two older boys, isn't he? Mm. He is just a magic dad, which allows her more time to spend at work and commenting on social media. Look, there's lots of amusing comments here. In fact, I'd like Sally Hepworth to read from page 106. Okay. Ange sat on the couch, flicking through Instagram and Facebook, getting irritated with people's posts. Don't write open letters to your children, husband, parents about how much you love them, she wanted to cry. It's vomit-inducing. Don't post about how many kilometres you've run today. It's boring and braggy. Don't rant about the traffic conditions on the way home. People don't give two hoots about your commute. She tossed her phone. It was getting dark outside and Ange was tired. As far as she was concerned, social media was a place for witty, satirical comments, stylistic food pics, photos of beautiful homes and children and birth announcements. Who didn't love a good birth announcement? It was a place to scroll through to get an idea of where you fit in the world and figure out whether you're winning or losing at life. As one of the other girls comments, comments, she didn't just sell houses, she sold the life you wanted to lead. But we also know that she thought about her husband. When you watched too closely, you saw things you didn't want to see. Mm. Well, now, another couple, Fran. Well, she's sick of watching over her husband. What's happened to Nigel? Nigel's had a bit of a tough time over the previous years. He sunk into a period of depression 
Um, and he ended up getting himself into a bit of trouble with some finances as well. And so things have been kind of strained in their marriage for the last little while. Yeah. Strained in the marriage, but she's actually now that the her her daughter is a little bit older, she's out getting rid of excess energy. What's she doing? Mm, she's running. She is running. She <laughs> is running and running. She's running sometimes several times a day, and that running initially seems like it's just a habit, but it becomes quite quickly clear that um, in fact she's running away from something and potentially even punishing herself for something. Mm, from her demons. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Essie. Her husband and her mother Barbara that we mentioned are concerned about her becoming unhinged again with this next baby. Unhinged. Mm, mm. Interesting word. What happened? Yeah, she, she um, struggled a lot with her first baby and after its birth she did something that was uh, quite terrifying for all of them and so now she's had her second baby and everyone's watching her quite closely and that's one of the reasons that her mother's moved in right next door Um, and everyone's kind of waiting for something to happen and um, Essie's quite keen to to convince everyone that she's fine um, but perhaps she's not quite as fine as she's making out no no losing a child you know if any of you have been out there and lost a kid even for a sec in the supermarket oh shopping mall it is terrifying so Isabel the new neighbour says her job is working for a not-for-profit that helps find lost children or does she Mm. and she says she's going to have children sooner rather than later. Well, we know the desire to become a mother starts the very book, the very first paragraph. So we'll have Sally Hepworth read her first paragraph from The Family Next Door. The funny thing is, I've spent my whole life wanting you. As a toddler, I was forever toting around a plastic doll, wrapping it and feeding it and changing its nappy. As a child, my favourite pastime was making up baby names. As a teenager, I babysat every chance I could, imagining you nestled against my hip instead of the the stranger's child I carried. So, a stranger's child I carried. Well, we don't know who the narrator of that bit was, but what have you done with this story through the book? So the mystery first person Mm. narration is spliced throughout the book and that becomes the real mystery at the heart of the book, which... Um, of the characters, is this first-person narrator? Is it any of the characters? Um, oh. And if it is, which one is it? Oh, I had them mean? all picked it for different reasons at different <laughs> times. You know, it was really a very good jigsaw and a surprise ending. Anyway, well, <laughs> we we know parenting requires a lot of trust. Well, as we said, Barbara and Ben are really worried about Essie and her new and really strong friendship with Isabel. That, that worries them too. So how much trust do you put into a babysitter? You know, and, and it's sort of one of those things, you know, I think we've all been, you know, if you've been a mother, you sort of quite often look at babysitting and think, oh, just need some time. Mm, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that we all like to think that, and I'm a mother of three myself, um, that we want to take every... Um, every caution when it comes to who's looking after our children Um, and absolutely we do but at the same time you know sometimes in moments of desperation I felt like I might have handed my child to anyone who would have been prepared (laughs) to take them. Absolutely. So um, best laid plans can get thrown out the window can't they? 
And how long would you look for your child before content contacting the police? That's another tricky one, mm. isn't it? You know, you sort of you think, oh, dear. Mm. And is it really just a mother's duty to worry or parents? So, let, look, they're all open-ended questions. I don't want Sally to answer any of those because <laughs> they'll give too much away from the, from the plot of the book. So... Well, we all know that you have to have sex by parents to have babies, but what about outside the family unit? No, there's there's a bit of infidelity. <laughs> Has one parent questioning the paternity of their child, one faking a pregnancy, and another with an illegitimate child? So there's all these weird sexual connotations around, and then you've also introduced genetic sexual attraction. Sally, explain what that is. Yeah, so genetic sexual attraction is a phenomenon that was coined in the 70s um, and it started with a psychologist who in fact had um, adopted a son out at birth and then she was later uh, reconciled with that son and there was an attraction that started Um, and the more she looked into this attraction the more she found that this was actually a phenomenon between relatives who meet as adults Um, because there isn't that natural conditioning that happens from spending a lifetime with someone like brothers and sisters you know they they uh, sort of are taught not to find each other attractive um, just through life and through exposure Um, and so it's a very real condition and it does affect um, most commonly you hear about it with a a child and a and a parent who was separated at birth but um, it can affect anyone it can affect siblings it can affect um, obviously fathers and daughters. Um, it can even affect people of the same gender, um, brothers, things oh, like that. It was really interesting to read about it. And it's so strong. You know, 50% of reunion cases mm-hmm. have this genetic sexual attraction. I know I was chatting with a, um, an author called Carly Ladd many, oh, a couple of books of hers ago, and she'd written a whole book about this and oh, right. thought, my goodness. <laughs> so I did know about it. Um <laughs> Sandringham may be a family suburb, but there's a bit of a laugh between what makes a Sydney and a Melbourne (laughs) people. (laughs) I think you enjoyed that. I did enjoy that, yes. I've got a brother that lives in Sydney and we are constantly having a... um discussions on on Sydney versus Melbourne. (laughs) (laughs) It it just sort of fitted in there so well, so well. Well, Sally was last here with her book, The Secrets of Midwives, a book I very much enjoyed, with some plotting surprises, just as this one has. So you're pretty good at that, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) But um, in the back at the end of the book, you acknowledge your editor, Jennifer Endelin, and your words, every time I write myself into a corner, you're there to help me out. Now, I can't believe that you could have... This This book seems so seamless and so well plotted that you'd ever r- write yourself into a corner. <laughs> That's because of good editors that make it seem like that. <laughs> My whole writing experience has been writing myself into corners, but I think that that's a good thing too because it means that you, if you don't guess what's going to happen yourself, then the reader's never going to guess. Um, but the, the side... Um, side effect of that is that often you end up somewhere that you didn't plan to and you're not sure how to Get find out. your way out but okay eventually you always do well just on that was it your idea or the editor's idea to to intercept all that that other story about motherhood going on through the book with the silent narrator 
So that was me. Um, I actually wrote that whole section as one um, ah. and that was my way of really understanding how that that whole piece fit with everything else. And um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it at first, but when I did, and it was part of the editing process, once I did splice it through the book, that seemed to, to work well and help to pace the book as well. So that was one of my aha moments, as Oprah would say. well it did it fitted beautifully absolutely beautifully through the book and as as we sort of said it kept you guessing and you sort of did you finish this book and relook at your children (laughs) and your husband (laughs) I'm always looking at them with a critical eye all of them (laughs) Um, and everyone else yeah and the other little funny bit that I really liked was character Ben now Ben owns gyms and everything but uh, after sex Ben always thought he was a superhero (laughs) (laughs) they all it was witty. It was. Um, I, I. I don't think it has to be Sandringham. I think it could be. You know, in many suburbs. <laughs> but it was a very good read. And the book I'm talking about is the Family Next Door by Sally Hepworth, and it's a Macmillan Australian publication. Thank you, Sally. Thank you. Well, we, <laughs> we both had uh, books about today, society, and things that go contemporary on. issues and such like. 